You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, on the show, I wanted to talk to you about Jupiter Notebooks. And I think, let's just, can we start off with just like what they are and, and what you use them for? So Jupyter Notebooks, I, I think they're really great. They're um, a notebook solution for, um, well, what are they for? That's a good question. So what do they provide? They provide a sort of environment in which I think you can do various things, including data analysis. So Jupyter is originally came out of the IPython project, which was a way of improving the console for the Python programming language, which goes a long way back, I think, to around sort of 2002, 2003. And it's funny, I always remember this because I explored Python as a language for doing machine learning in, in about 2003, while I was visiting Mike Jordan in Berkeley. And unbeknownst to me, there was a grad student, I think he was, or a postdoc at the time called Fernando Perez in Berkeley doing the same thing. And whereas I went, oh, the, the command line console thing isn't that great, so I'll just not use it. Fernando sort of went, oh, the command line console thing isn't that great. Let me create a new one. <laughs> so they created this new one called IPython. And they actually, but then if you've used console, it's like command line. And it's a great way of interacting with your data. And you have it in R and Octave and MATLAB and Julia and these various languages. But what they, I think, were trying to emulate is something a bit closer to what um, Mathematica had. So Mathematica, people get very excited about. So as you would work with the data, you would sort of create these sort of notebooks, these lab books. And Mathematica is an amazing system. Unfortunately, it's closed source. I actually met Steve Wolfram once and I got this chance to ask him my uh, sort of fanboy question, which is, why, why did you open source it? And he's, he's lovely. I mean, he was very nice. And he sort of said, well, just when we launched it, there wasn't a model for distributing open source software. You know, you had, if you wanted to distribute software, it was closed source. So it's, it's an amazing uh, system, Mathematica. I haven't used it myself, but you see people do amazing things with it. And one of the features it had was something a bit more like a notebook. And I think that um, there was some inspiration, I'm not sure, of, of from the Mathematica notebook. Steve Wolfram actually, I think, said to me, he was surprised it took other people so long to come up with something similar. He wasn't surprised that it... Um, came about. So what's interesting to me about them is that they are a way of really enabling you to sort of record how you're interacting with the data. Because you create these cells, each one either contains sort of code or a little bit of markdown to describe what you're doing. So you can create these um, rich documents. Uh, I think Donald Knuth called it sort of literate programming. And you end up creating a document which includes code and, and figures and text as you go. And the idea is, or the ideal, I think, is that by the time you finish your analysis, you end up with a document describing your analysis at the same time. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And um, the other thing about them is they run in web browsers. And uh, so that means you can be running on remote machines and all sorts. So you get this great access. But there's, the reason I wanted to talk about them is because occasionally there's bubbling up this sort of controversy um, from software developers, certain software developers who absolutely hate them. They think that they're the nastiest thing ever to exist but I think what's going on is that when software developers look at them, they assume that they're trying to replace, say, an integrated development environment, uh, which is your classic software engineer's approach where, you know, you have maybe have a debugger and maybe sort of graphical debugging type things and uh, tools for looking at memory and your compiler and your editor all in, in one place, sort of Visual Studio being amongst the sort of early commercial ones. There's lots of open source solutions and various things. 
And they are absolutely not that. They are not an integrated development environment. But it, it occurred to me that there's something is sort of interesting. When someone sees someone else programming, they presume their objective is the same. And I think that when a data scientist is coding, one thing that is very important to me is to realize that they are not coding in the same way as when a software developer is coding. And what I sort of the analogy I tend to use to help people understand that is this data sciences debugging analogy. I can't remember if I've mentioned it on the program before. Well, it, the idea is like, so I, your boss sort of tells you they, they found a USB stick on the floor in the car park and uh, they give it to you and then they sort of say, okay, and I think that on this USB stick, for some reason I know that there's a really important piece of software that you need to call and it's going to make our production systems make a lot of money. So uh, that that's what your boss says to you one morning. You're a software engineer. Figure it out. Yeah. Then then they like. And so what would a software engineer do in that situation? Well, they would run a mile. They would run screaming away because, you know, it's a very dangerous situation. You're looking at a code base that you don't know who wrote it, why they wrote it, if there's adversarial code in there. But your boss in this case is pretty insistent that you have to incorporate this code in your production systems. So in that case, the way you would do it is, is sort of very carefully with a lot of debugging, a lot of examining of the code, trying different API calls, exposing what software libraries there were on there, trying different calls, seeing what their side effects were. And as you would go, you would write a lot of tests, ideally, to sort of try and verify, to hopefully lay down what your thought process is. So if you have to put the project down and pick it up later, which you might often have to do with a debugging project, you know where you were, or if someone else has to take over, if, if you're doing a good job. Now, that is to me the job of the data scientist. It's just you're not given a USB stick with software on it. You're just given a data set. And, and instead of an API call, you're being asked to find the right algorithm to run on the data set to sort of release it into your production code or, or perhaps maybe just derive a business insight from the data. But, but it's the same type of deal that you're not, you know, at the, end of your, at the end of your analysis of the data, if you are going to productionize whatever you've done, then you probably only have two lines, which is, you know, I, I don't know, run a random forest on these features trained against this, and then use that for prediction, you know, so it's like three lines of code, but the amount of time and thought you've put in to creating those three lines of code is way more than anyone has ever put into a line of code apart from a previous data scientist doing the same thing, you know, but the first time, sorry, the first time you do it, you know, you'll put more thought into that line of code than any line of code you've previously written. And, and it's a very different mindset around how you are programming because really, so I call it data science is debugging. And then you realize that actually what Jupyter is giving you is this massive debugging tool with all these very powerful features such as plotting and, and ways of this, you know, there's, the facets stuff from Google for visualizing data, that's not a specific to Jupyter Notebooks, but it's a really cool thing. You can run it in a Jupyter Notebook for visualizing and playing with your data. And the notebook itself is, is really that, not a development environment. But when you're finished, my theory is, you know, there may be a couple of lines of code that you, you want to hand off to the software engineer. I think that that's why there's this confusion and, and like this sort of, you know, not that computer scientists ever get angry about trivial things doesn't normally happen. But you see this almost visceral anger about Jupyter Notebooks sometimes. And it's like, you know, that maybe it's because, you know, when you feel that about something, maybe it's because the objective of the thing is slightly different from what you think it should be being used for. And, and I think it is in that case. That sounds amazing. I mean, I mean, I feel like it would make replicability of your projects a lot easier. 
So, there, I mean, there are efforts as well. There's things I think it's called Jupiter Hub, which is is moving more towards an IDE. I haven't used it myself because, you know, um, I'm just behind on everything. But everyone keeps telling me about it and says it's very exciting. I'm a little bit nervous about it because I like tools that, I mean, it's probably amazing and great. But the thing I really love about Jupyter Notebooks is when I've got a notebook in front of me, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm not coding for coding's sake. I know I'm doing an analysis. It's sort of like, I mean, I do weird, I like, I write everything in Markdown now and I try and avoid Word and all sorts of things. I like to have a piece of software in front of me. I, I, I think of it as like the craft software movement. Instead of like having a piece of software, like I, I had this notion once when I was in Starbucks and you know, that they'll give you any type of coffee like you want. But, you know, it's still to me a less satisfying experience than going into a really good coffee shop and then just and you knowing that they'll that they'll give you a coffee that they've designed that is great. You know, that you're not being asked to design it like Starbucks is like, you know, you've got all these menu options and you can have you have you can have like half soya milk, you can have half skim milk, you know, three shots of decaf, one shot of this and you can come out with this bespoke drink. I don't like thinking about my drink at that level of detail in the morning. I like, you know, I'm thinking about something else. And I had this weekend once I'd been working on um, some notes my mum had done for a, a meeting and I had to change the formatting in Word and there were all these menu options. And then I had Starbucks the next day and I was just struck by the resemblance between, uh, you know, trying to sort out your style file in Word. Uh, you know, it's like, I just want to write something. I didn't want to worry about the formatting of each line. Yeah, so I, I sort of had this notion of craft software, which hasn't caught on at all. I wrote a short blog post about it. Totally hasn't caught on. But I love the idea that the sort of software that you're writing is not trying to do everything. It's just really, well, from the user's perspective, it's not trying to do everything. And, and that's the software I'm very, very comfortable with, that I open it. It's for that one thing. I don't get confused. I don't start checking Facebook and whatever else like that. I just do the thing that I opened it to do because... You know, everything's so distracting nowadays. Like a sigh of relief when I open a notebook, it means, oh, I'm doing data analysis. This is like, yeah, I, I'm in the world of where I'm looking at data and plotting it and things like that. I'm sure there's the great things. People worry. One of the things you can do is you can run the uh, cells out of order. So instead of like a program from top to bottom, you, you create a cell, you run it. And whatever, I love this feature, actually. Uh, whatever the state of memory of the machine, if you go up, the notebook and then run another cell it's like picking up on the state of memory from down the notebook and like computer scientists hate that i love it um it means that i think what you have to do because it, it, it to me it gives you this very sort of non-linear way with operating on your data but at the end when you finish you have to make sure that what you've done doesn't rely on you bouncing around the notebook that's why the sort of software engineers hate it and there's there's things people are looking at for that there's also interesting tools around uh, version controlling of notebooks because one thing you keep finding is like you do a notebook you've done it and then you sort of want to do a slightly different analysis do you start with the old notebook you change it and there's a lot of i think open questions around that and there's some interesting tools i think nbdiff is one of them for diffing notebooks but i don't think that i'm not sure to what extent they're integrated in tools like github yet um, but when they are it'll be great yeah, so I'm, I'm just a big fan of notebooks, but I, I understand that there are people who think, I think if you're someone who looks at notebooks and thinks that they're a terrible idea, then you may be using them for the wrong purpose. I do think that we need a lot more improvement in our data science best practices, and probably everyone who's using notebooks isn't using them in the optimal way. Um, I don't know that I know the optimal way either, because I think the other 
point about it is let's go back to that data sciences debugging analogy. In that situation, my feeling is you sort of want two things as an output of your analysis of what's on that USB stick. You want one thing that tells the story of what you did and what your thought process was. And that to me is the literate document that notebooks are trying to produce. But I also sort of feel you want to produce a separate like library safe wrapper around the uh, what was on the USB stick. So there's sort of a cleaned up library, which does things that other people might want to reuse. So it may be that someone else is going to come along and, and try a different API call on that uh, USB stick, just like someone else might come along and want to do something else with the data. And what we're not doing enough, I th I, and, and this is one thing that data readiness levels are about, is sort of leaving behind a sort of a refreshed API, a wrapper of the formalized ideas that we learned around that data at the end of the notebook. So to my mind, when you're writing in a notebook, you should always be trying to do things. Initially, you're sort of creative. You're not sure what you're doing. You just start creating the notebook. But at some point, you should be looking at portions of your notebook and saying, that's something that belongs in a library for working with this data in general. To me, so what happens, what I end up doing is I've got a cell. So like, let's say I've written a cell that's, that's pulling the data off the disk. Like I was doing this for processing um, NeurIPS data when I was program chair and things like this. So I've got some data on disk, which is like the reviews, right? And I write a cell for trying to turn that into a pandas frame, which allows me to do the analysis I need to find out if everyone's got their review in or if we need calibration in the reviews, right? Now, once I've written that bit of code, then I'm going to want to use that in another notebook. So that's to me, that's, that, that goes into a Python library that I associate with a notebook. Um, but then other times I would write, and I put all the notebooks online, so you can go and find these notebooks and, and see the code. But sometimes I was like, okay, so th this piece is something that I want to share about what the thought process was. So that to me is, well, it stays in the notebook. I think that what's going to happen over time is we're going to see, you know, whether my notion is correct, it's a notion, and I try and propagate it. Whether it's correct, I don't know, but what I suspect we'll see is tools to help with this process over the time. We'll have a link to Jupyter Notebooks on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our listener question this week on Talking Machines is pretty straightforward, Neil. It's, uh, it's what is going on at OpenAI and what is your opinion about it? And I assume what they're talking about there, I assume what they're referencing is this release or sort of like not release or, or the rollout around, maybe that's what we can call it, GP2. So sort of run us down what's, what's happening over there. Well, that's a great question, GPT-2. So... It's a language model, which I think OpenAI have released, published on, but said they're not releasing, if I understand correctly, the weights of the language model. And the reason is because it's so good that they say that it's dangerous because uh, it could be being used, it could be used for creating fake news stories en masse. And it was a bit controversial that they did this on Twitter. Not that anything else has ever been controversial on Twitter, but uh, I think I think it's fair to say that there was some controversy around whether it makes sense to do this. And I guess particularly when you've called yourself OpenAI, and then if you're not sort of sharing what you're doing, I don't have a problem with that per se. I, I kind of personally, I don't think everything should be open. I think that's a very bad idea. I think we should be trying to share progress of research as much as we can. That's the spirit of research. But you know, it seems clear to me that there may be occasions when when you might 
want to do this. We might want to withhold something. Um, I guess the follow-up question is, is this one? I'm not sure that I have a very strong opinion on it, but a lot of people do. And I've sort of resisted commenting on it on Twitter because I think it's a sort of, these things get very stormy. And I think you only really understand the... um, depth of it when when you you get information from some experts but there have been some really good blog posts and and what i want actually so i i don't think twitter is always an engine for driving forward debate but i personally really value people on twitter who um don't choose to sort of shout out and retweet every scandal and amplify without checking facts but people who are actually look deeply into an issue um, before responding. And so a name that springs to mind in, in, in this case is uh, some of Delip Rao's tweets around this space, who I only know through Twitter and just through following him on Twitter. But his own blogging and also his retweeting of other blogs around this space, I found very useful for putting the issue into context. So to give you a sort of sense of what the broader argument was about is, I guess, there are some people are saying that um, this this way of releasing something is is not in the best interest of academia. I don't know exactly what the order was, but I think it's something along the lines of there was an early release with knowledge to sort of journalists and a blog post and a paper. This is something also DeepMind, I think, do. And so it means when the paper hits the stands, there's a lot of profile around it. And I first heard about it by reading about it in The Guardian, not by seeing it on Twitter. Whatever the motivations are, I don't think that that's particularly healthy in the academic environment when the first time you're seeing about a new machine learning model is in a newspaper because, you know, and and, and it is, it's clear like, okay, so the, the claim is there that we shouldn't release this because of the danger of deep fakes, uh, because the language model is so good, uh, people could use it for generating fake news. And, and that's an interesting question, but but to simultaneously release your model and say that that's what you believe without having had a debate in, and maybe they did have some sort of debate with a closed group, is, is a bit difficult because you get the journalist's interpretation before you get the academic community's opinion. And academic community opinions take a while to settle. We don't know the answer on everything. And to me, what's what's happening here is the speed of release and the speed of media pushing is happening faster than the wider academics can, group of academics can come to an opinion about something. So you're not getting injected expertise and, and good context from the sort of more considered, well, if you believe academics are more considered, but from from the wider community. And I think that raises interesting issues. Because my understanding from reading the blog posts, and I shared on my Twitter feed the blog posts that I've read, and you know, I'm I'm deferring to the experts on that, is that the model itself is is not a revolution, it's an evolution of models that other people have proposed. It's just with larger data, you know, larger scale. So so at which point do academics start saying, hey, there's a major issue here? You know, which point do, do we all have to switch on and, uh, as the guardians of the field? What's happening at the moment is you're seeing an enormous amount from larger organizations that have more of... Um, so it, it's clear that the media seems to respond more rapidly to an organization with a big name behind it. So the larger organizations like DeepMind or OpenAI. You know, I, the pure openness is clearly silly. Like where everything is open and always shared at all times in, in its purest form, I, I don't think works. And what I think 
and I, I think you made a great point there. And I think what you're seeing there is different sensibilities about the nature of openness and what should be shared in different communities from academia to the sort of more press orientated side. And I mean, when I say pure openness is silly, I mean, what uh, the academic community has openness at its foundation. I mean, you go back to Joseph Priestley, people who these libertarian thinkers who had the same thoughts, who founded libertarian politics simultaneously while finding the ethos of the research community of sharing of ideas. Um, but, you know, not many academics in the past shared everything as they thought it. We're getting to the point now that, that people are wanting to share everything as they thought it and produced it and as they think it. And there, there was a sort of mechanism for review, which I do think has serious problems today in terms of, you know, the way peer, and, and we're, we're trying things around it. But, you know, it's got issues that we're trying to, to deal with so that the scientific community can form some form of consensus. Now, scientific consensus is should never be... Um, believed to be some sort of golden truth but decide because it evolves and it should evolve but the speed at which you can form scientific consensus is a lot slower than the speed at which the media is interested in updates and then we've got these very interesting channels that that feed into that so you know it, even I mean, I think what we see with Twitter is the speed at which Twitter can push updates is much more much quicker than we can form media consensus and, and we're seeing that around the space here. I mean, I think that it is an interesting, and, I, and it's great that these these debates are sort of having, so it's triggered that. I, I sort of wonder if we worry too much about when these things happen, and actually they'll just settle down in the longer term, and that it's raised an important point in terms of what do we think about releasing models that can do quite powerful things in a, in a freely available manner. We, we certainly, there are regulations around cryptographic solutions, there are certainly regulations around sort of nuclear technology. So there's clearly precedent for deciding at which point you research, it becomes morally problematic to release it. Whether it's this point is, is another question. And I think OpenAI are encouraging, they want to have a debate, they've invited some people to have such a debate. And, and that's great. But my own opinion, by the way, is I think what I think it would be great if we had these things out there generating text so that we would all realize that all this text is just rubbish. I mean, I think what all you're going to see is that, oh, well, you know, if every time you're looking at an article, the first question in your head is, was this generated by a recurrent neural network? Then I think it would be a better world. You know, I think I think it would be a better world because most of the stuff you read could have been generated by a recurrent neural network. And I think that everyone said that around Wikipedia. Oh, what will happen if you know it's sort of edited? Well, it's what was interesting with Wikipedia is it evolved into sort of a very reliable source because lots of eyes were on the problem and there was a lot of skepticism involved. It has iterated itself into a regime. There are some issues clearly with Wikipedia, but I think it's an amazing thing. But it was because people were being invited to view, review what they were seeing critically and invited to edit it. I don't know what the modern equivalent of that is, but what I think that this may drive is a deeper interest in curated information in, in, in um, institutions that are standing by information that have some consequences when the information isn't true. Now, I don't know what we'll call these things. You know, they could be maybe newspapers or, <laughs> or journals. What's going on at the moment is those organizations have gone too far in the direction of emulating the sort of, the, you know, the clickbait. And, and I, I don't know, maybe this won't happen. Maybe this is Neil's dream. Neil dreams of a world where recurrent neural networks are writing crap on the internet all the time. 
And so you actually start thinking carefully about the quality. You have to ask yourself about the quality of the information you're being fed, that when someone shares with you a link on a social media platform, you say to yourself, wait a second, is this just written by a recurrent neural network? You know, I mean, maybe that's too much, but it does feel like it could be a consequence of all this, that when reality is just a small proportion of what's possibly fake, then people are a little bit more careful. I think that the interesting thing, maybe maybe what we've seen with it's so unclear whether things like fake news and stuff are a transitional thing or they're a steady state thing. Because clearly in the transition, it, it's very obvious. Like If you've lived in a world where typically news resources that you see on a regular basis are well curated and you suddenly shift to the place where that's not the case, then probably humans will take some time to adapt. But humans do adapt. And, and it, you know it, it's unclear whether that effect is a transient or whether it's sort of embedded. I mean, it, it could be either. Right? But certainly releasing, um, making it cheaper to create uh, fake things. I'm not, I'm not saying one should... makes me a bit nervous what I'm saying, isn't it? Because it's kind of like, let's release the genetically modified mosquitoes to kill the malaria mosquitoes. And uh, I'm sure there won't be any consequences. You know, that'll be fine. I mean, whenever you're dealing with a very, very complex system, which is why careful thought is needed. So, so that's kind of my... my rough opinion on it is I wonder if that could happen or my my sort of thinking that it's not as simple as oh we'll release this and there'll be more deep fakes because these I mean there will be more and that's a bad thing because the environment we're playing with is very hard but you know the fact that you can't predict and you can't tell it does show that, that we do need to be aware but it is actually at the same time you know as history proves it's extremely difficult to predict the consequences of any particular technological innovations. Well, you can find the link to OpenAI's post and paper on GP2, a link to some of the reporting that happened around it, and some links to some of the Twitter discussion that has been taking place around it on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you have opinion about the conversation or what's taking place, you can tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Brooks Page of the Alan Turing Institute. And when I got a chance to sit down and talk with him, I asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I went to a liberal arts school for college, and I graduated never expecting to do more grad school ever again <laughs> or anything like this. What, did you, what is your undergraduate degree in? Uh, in math, actually. Oh, but, nice. Okay. Um, in, you know, so I left, I left school and I moved to New York as... Everyone does. As one does. And um, there I worked doing web development, web design, mm -hmm. and some like computer programming jobs for several years. And at some point I was like, well, maybe maybe I should be doing something kind of different. <laughs> and let's let's vary it up a bit. So I, I started doing a master's course in statistics mm -hmm. on the side while working. I had this idea at the time. Well, you know, this is going to be... This is going to be like kind of boring, but it's going to be really useful things to know. And it'll like, let me do more interesting things in the future. This is really like, You're eating lots of vegetables. Yeah. And then I get there and it was actually like super interesting. Oh, that's good. I, was, I was really pleasantly surprised to actually like it. So uh, I, I learned a lot. It was um, this was I started in 2011. So it was a little before I feel like this machine learning, deep learning, Craze. eating everything yeah. was something that 
certainly I was aware of b before going in. And I, I actually had a good time and, and, and learned a lot in that program. And Where was the stats program? Was oh, this was at Columbia in New oh, York. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. And so then as I was finishing that, so I met Frank Wood at the time. So mm -hmm. Frank Wood was then my PhD supervisor at Oxford, and he moved to Oxford, and mm. I moved to the UK at about the same time he did. And so this was really, I, I ended up almost accidentally doing a PhD program <laughs> because I was like, wait, I actually like this. Um, and so then, nice. then I, uh, I, I went into the PhD program. So you were in Frank Wood's lab. He was your PI. Um, and Frank is known for his work in probabilistic programming. Tell me about what was exciting for you there and what sort of questions you were getting to ask. Right. It was really great because we had the sense that models that people use in the sciences are often not the model that they really want to use, but rather the model that they have sitting in front of them in yeah. a piece of statistical software. Yeah. And so it's like, it's hard to write down math for a model. To it's even least. harder to write down the math for doing inference in a model. And for some people, then also even harder to write the code for doing inference right. in a model. So we had this sense where if we could specify languages where you could, you know, many people know how to write small computer programs mm -hmm. that simulate their data. And if we could write inference methods that work on this, then we could really, we could really allow people to write custom models for, for their problem at hand much easier. To actually get the experiment they want instead of whatever is, you know, sitting on their out-of-the-box stat yeah, software. Yeah, exactly. And so you Amazing. might have all sorts of things that are confounding that you really know are problems, but you don't know how to work it in and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I, I started there and I worked on a lot of inference methods for for probabilistic programming. Mm -hmm. And then as, as I was leaving Frank's group and as I came here, we started kind of, or I started asking questions about what about when you really don't want to write the generative model by hand? Mm. So the idea of probabilistic programming is you you can sit down and write something which simulates simulates your data hypothetically, and then there's some automatic inference engine behind the scenes that can tell you, oh, here's what your inputs could have been, right. or here's some some stochastic elements in the middle of your program. But what if your data isn't measurements that you've meticulously collected, but something like an image or something like audio right. or something where you really don't want to have to generate this thing pixel by pixel? You have no idea. Right. And this is the sort of thing where, in the meantime, we've seen deep learning is actually very good at learning representations for these kinds of raw signals. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking about how to combine probabilistic programming and deep learning. Wow. So, so to me, combining generative models and, and deep learning is actually pretty natural. So the sort of prototype for a generative model I have in my head is often something like these uh, medical diagnostic networks mm. where you think about, well, you know, if somebody has disease A, uh, how often do they exhibit symptom B? And right. then you can ask, well, given they have symptom B, what is disease A? And part of this is, is answering the question, the inference question of does the person have this disease? But part of it is also you have to know how often this symptom arises when you do have the disease. And for something like this, it's pretty easy to measure from data when you have a lot of people. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it might be quite, quite tricky. I think an easy example is like if you have measurements of a ball flying through the air, you probably have a pretty good model that there's there's gravity pulling it down probably you know an object in motion will stay in motion right. and all of this kind your of rules stuff. are fairly set and well defined yeah you, you have some idea maybe you're on the moon or <laughs> right, whatever right, right but like it's it's you sort of know what's going to happen but if you have a video of a ball flying through space 
you still sort of know what's going to happen, but now you have to combine it with with something that tracks the ball. So mm -hmm. you could write something to track the ball or so on. So starting sort of thinking about how can you learn these, these distributions automatically mm. or how can you think of things like graphical models where the connections between the latent variables are not just conditional probability tables that yeah. you can easily measure, but maybe something kind of complicated that you have to figure out how to learn from data. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me about um, where you're taking this idea. Are there really any applications that you're really excited about? Yeah. So in the last year or year and a half that I've been at the Turing, I've been I've been meeting a lot of chemists. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, it's great actually. So the chemi chemistry and material science, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity. And I went to a workshop about a year ago in Copenhagen that uh, a friend of mine was was organizing, and it was awesome. None of us could talk to each other. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> it was great. <laughs> the ultimate like, <laughs> collaborator problem. <laughs> it was so good. So there were a bunch of talks from people who work in chemistry. There were a bunch of talks from people who work in machine learning. Mm. There were a few bioinformatics talks. And Ooh. during lunch, you start asking the person next to you what they do. And you start using a few technical terms. And you get some funny faces. And back and forth. And eventually, we're using, we're just kind of waving our hands in the air, sort of <laughs> explaining what we're simulating and why. And it's it's great, right? So this was this was a great experience. And so there was also this sense that there's really a lot of opportunity for, for collaboration here. Yeah. Um, not just in terms, I guess, of machine learning being useful for chemistry, but also the kinds of problems that arise in chemistry informing models in machine learning. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like you're at sort of the hardest phase right now, which is where you're trying to basically get a PhD from your collaborator in whatever they have a PhD in so that you can actually like talk to each other and exchange that kind of technical levels of information. How is that going? How is the how is the translation going? Well, the nice part about machine learning is it's like it's pretty transferable skill. Yeah, so yeah. somebody shows up to you with a molecule and you're like, what's a molecule? And you're like, well, <laughs> it's kind of a graph. It's got atoms and the atoms are connected to other atoms in different kinds of ways. And you're like, oh, okay, got it. I can work with that. <laughs> nice. Or you're like, well, you can describe a molecule with a string of text and mm. this text is written in a formal language. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, got it. It's a language problem. And it's like, well, it's not really a language problem, but <laughs> oh, you no. can sort of map it onto things that are familiar concepts from computer science. Nice. That's fantastic. And tell me more about the, the chemists. How are they finding learning the exchange of information? Have you found that there are any um, roadblocks or things that you have to explain over and over again? There's always a little bit of skepticism when somebody shows up in a field and is like, hey, I've got this thing. <laughs> Uh, so I, I have one friend who's a chemist who, upon seeing a figure in a slide, said, the chemist in me just, just died a little. Oh, no. He's <laughs> like, no, but it was so much worse before. He's like, still. Oh, God. <laughs> so what advice would you give to someone who is perhaps a graduate student from another field who's interested in machine learning, wants to sort of start collaborating or start exploring working with collaborators, what, what do you even say to that person if you don't even know the language to speak when they're trying to like find someone to work with? I think actually the important part is finding someone to work with. I mm. think there's a lot of people in, in machine learning, in data science, I know certainly here at the Turing, I think, I think in general, who are really interested in new applications. So there's been a lot of focus on benchmark data sets mm -hmm. in machine learning, and yeah. this is great because it has driven a lot of progress in different kinds of methods. But at the same time, it's sort of, 
it really narrowly focuses on improving performance on benchmarks. Right. And this doesn't necessarily contribute back to the community that these benchmark problems even originated from in yeah. a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes difficult. You're just using people's data sets to like be really good at looking at that data set. Right. And it's not clear what like a 1% improvement in particular classification right. problems means. Like maybe that's the, the critical improvement that means this can now be used in some other system. Or maybe really it was good enough two years ago and what matters is closing the loop with something else and so on. So I know I, I'm interested in working in systems where you end up actually being able to apply it to whatever physical problem originated like this data. And I think a lot of other people are too. I think it's just a question of making sure we're all in touch. Yeah, definitely. Well, Brooks, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was fantastic to have you on the show. Sure. Thank you very much. Brooks Page of the Alan Turing Institute. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.